Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today we discuss an iterative organization, the only kind of organization that can learn and adapt fast enough to keep up in today's world. For anyone running a team of managers or advising someone who does, today we explore the fundamental behaviors that create iteration. Our guest will explain how to implement them and how to get the process started. Iterate defines what management really is and helps readers create a fast, flexible, focused management team that does it well. Our guest is recognized as one of the planet's clearest thinkers on management practice and provides a research-based blueprint for a management team that will take the next best step for an organization in any situation. This show is for senior leadership, frontline management, middle-line management, and human resource executives, and explores how to equip teams with both knowledge and practical skills so that they not only understand their own purpose, but also perform that purpose well amidst ever-changing conditions. It touches on how to create measurable business results for any management team of any size in any industry where complex work and frequent change are the norm. We explore how to tear down the silos created by the typical Western approach to management, how managers can manage other managers in an iterative organization so that the whole organization is coordinated, how to promote frontline self-sufficiency, how to successfully structure meetings to enable critical decision-making and ensure commitments are carried out how to help your reports give their reports insight into the ways their work impacts the big picture. We welcome CEO of Group Harmonics, an award-winning author of Iterate, run a fast, flexible, focused management team. Ed Musio, welcome to the show. Aiden, thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you on the show, man. I really, really enjoy this. And I would not normally be drawn to a management book, but you do a great job of really getting across the big picture and how this can help somebody who's being managed and also managing. I love the way you open the book, Ed, and I'd love if you started with this. You talk about the next best step metaphor. Sure. So I always talk about this. It's almost a silly metaphor, but walking to your car, right? So you walk out the door of a big office building or, or the mall, maybe where you're shopping, and you sort of look at your watch and you realize you have to get to your car in three minutes in order to stay on track for your next thing. And then you kind of look off across this giant parking lot in the direction where you think your car is and you start walking. The next thing that happens after that is probably the least interesting, least memorable part of your day. But what happens is you end up getting to your car in three minutes or less, and you go on about your day. And so I love this metaphor for management because in some ways, management is sort of the least interesting part of the organization, right? It's not super sexy or interesting to say, you know, our management is adjusting the way the organization runs. But if you look at what actually happens as you walk across the parking lot, You know, you might say, well, my CEO, my executive office, my brain, set a direction, a command, walk that way to the car and get there in three minutes. And then my feet, the workforce, carried it out. And you could say that and you wouldn't be wrong. But if you start looking at what actually happened once you started walking, there's a lot more to the story, right? So as you go along, your feet are detecting imperfection or trouble in the surface. Is there gravel? Is it slippery? And the muscles down there are making adjustments. So your workforce is adjusting to the work without a lot of, let's say, CEO involvement, right? You're not thinking too hard about that. They're also using a resource, which is blood oxygen, that's coming down from above. And if they need more, they can make what we might call an escalation. So they can call up to middle management, your cardiovascular system, and they can say, send down more blood oxygen. This happens without the CEO, unless the request is too great. And then middle management escalates it further. And you get one of those messages that we all get from time to time that says, 
you know, you better either breathe harder or walk slower because this isn't going to work. And so you make that adjustment up in the executive office, right? Now, at the same time in the executive office, you are looking where you're going. Simplistic, but true. And you're noticing things like, that's not my car, or there's an obstruction in my path, or something like that, or it's not safe to walk over there. And so you're sending down information. And so you've got this information flowing down from the top that's gained as you go along. You've got information flowing up from the bottom that's gained as you go along. And you've got decisions being made at all these different levels. And all of this whole system of decision-making comes together for the simplest of reasons, which is every step you take is the best step you can take from that place where you are. And then with every step you take, you incorporate your information before you take the next step. And so we talk about iteration. It's just simply learn and adjust and step and learn and adjust and step. And, and that's the next best step. That's all iteration is. This is how computers model flight data and weather information. This is how plants take shape as they grow. And this, we strongly believe with 70 years of history behind us, is the way management in high functioning organizations moves the organization toward where it's trying to go, despite the fact that everything is changing all around it, because every step is always the next best step from there, not the one that was in the plan at the beginning of the year. And of course, while that's a, a very simplistic metaphor and you do a great job telling that story, it's not what happens in organizations. Well, you know, you, when you play with this metaphor, you can have some fun because you can go, you know, I've been in an organization where we were in the middle of the parking lot having a left foot versus right foot debate, right? Where we get, you know, or, <laughs> or we're, you know, we're sort of heading for a hole and, and we're saying, we all know we're heading for a hole and then we fall in the hole because we can't seem to turn, right? And I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's not. I mean, if you study like really serious organizational failures, usually you find the knowledge was there. We knew we were heading for a hole and yet for whatever reason, we couldn't turn, right? So it's both funny and not funny. But if you don't iterate, if you start walking toward where you believe the car is in such a way that you're not allowed to adjust that walk, your chances of success are almost nil, right? And certainly optimal success is off the table. That's the issue, right? If you're not iterating, you're kind of in trouble. Yeah, and blockers like turf wars, budgets being blocked, and having horrific approval processes for budgets, and lack of information or withholding of information, these are all things that really do get in the way of organizational excellence. Yeah, I mean, imagine, imagine the left foot operation trying to accumulate more resources than the right foot operation, right? I mean, what would, what would be the point? But, but there's all these sort of, I call it the North American management model, you know, kind of the standard way we manage. And there's all these sort of things that they almost sometimes come across as as good things, like I'm going to protect and grow my resource base at the expense of the rest of the organization, like these kind of things. I mean, they're sort of, you can understand why from a sort of a human history, sort of a reptile brain, you know, that kind of psychological perspective, why they happen. But if you back up and look at the organization as a system trying to coordinate for output, it's an absolutely destructive behavior. And it's not hard to see that from that viewpoint. So Ed, let's start looking at solutions. Management is essentially a feedback system for an organization, like you say in the book. But you give the great metaphor that it's like a thermostat. Right. Well, so once you decide that you want to iterate in a system, whatever your system is, so the thermostat, you know, sort of the heating and cooling system, what you realize is you need a feedback loop, right? So the thermostat's an easy one to think about. I have this box in my attic that makes hot or cold air. You know, I have a house that I want in a certain temperature. So I set the temperature I want. And then the thermostat just sits there on the wall. And all it does is check the temperature and turn the system on or off, and then check again and turn the system on or off or leave it alone, check again, check again, right? And it just keeps checking and feeding back a command to the output machine based upon 
how things are looking right now, right? So we call that a feedback system. Now, now we sometimes get mixed up and, and we'll talk about maybe a little later the sort of different kinds of management, but we we talk about feedback in the context of managing someone and we think about, you know, giving someone feedback on how they're doing. I'm not saying that's not important, but this is different. Being a feedback system is this checking where we're going to end up with based on the heading we're on and then making adjustments or not because we do or don't believe we need to based on an understanding of where we're trying to go versus where we're heading, right? So, so that's a feedback system. Check, adjust, check, adjust. In the heating and cooling system in my attic, the feedback system is the thermostat. In an iterative organization, when you've got this organization iterating, right, taking the steps and adjusting along the way, if you think about an organization, the only thing that can serve the purpose of the feedback system is collectively management. That's the group of people that have the resources of the organization under their control. That's the group of people who hopefully understand the targets, the expected outcomes of the organization. And they're the ones who are organizationally given the resources and and the authority. They're authorized to make the changes and the adjustments as they go along. So management is the feedback system of the organization. And if it's not serving that purpose, then you've got a pretty serious problem. And you mentioned there as well, this is one of the things I think we do need to get on the same page with the term management. It's like innovation. People perceive it the way they experience it. Let's clear up any misconceptions about that in what you mean by management. The language is challenging. You know, the Inuit Eskimos had 50 words for snow and, you know, we all know the ancient Greeks had, what was it, six or eight words for love, right? We don't have enough words for management. And so I sort of split it just to be simple into three things. The first one I call managing with a capital ing. And that is, if you have someone who works for you, one or more people, doesn't matter if they're managers or not, you need to be managing them with a capital ING. Setting goals, helping them develop, helping them deal with problems, uh, modeling policy. There's a whole bunch of things to do there. It's all important. And there is an awful lot written about how to do that well. And, and managers should attend to that. Absolutely. It's not the whole story. The second one that we often bump into is there's a big body of work around change management. I guess you would say with a capital change, right? And change management is, you know, we're going to go into a whole new market or we're going to substantially restructure the organization or just really big, huge changes. And it's all about the psychology and sociology of moving large groups through the changes, early adopters, late adopters, you know, the psychology of change, communication plans. Again, if you're doing that kind of change, super important not to be minimized. But there's this third thing that I think gets kind of the short stick, which is what I call management with a capital meant. And that is this set of managers, like I was talking about, functioning as the feedback system of the organization, functioning as a group to constantly adjust and readjust the, the direction of the organization by noticing where we are now, where our current path will take us, and how that compares to where we want to go. And so if you don't have management doing management with a capital meant, then the other two things won't save you. You can't, you know, clearly set goals and do compensation and get your way out of it. And you can't do change management every time something has to change because things are always changing. So you need this third piece, this management with a capital meant. And that's really what I'm focused on in this book, Iterate, because I feel like this is the piece that is missing. For all that's been written, there's very, very little written about this. That's what really drew me towards it. And like any good system, which is what you say management is with a capital meant, there's underlying principles and there's five key management principles you talk about here, which we're going to go through on the show. But before we talk about them, you talk about this ideal team, what good can look like with the story of Alice. 
Yeah, you know, and it's it's tough to tell the story of Alice. We actually have that video on iteratenow.com, which which is like a six minute, here's the story of Alice and it shows it all. But but the high level thing of the story of Alice is, you know, it's a story of this manager of managers. She's in an organization, she works for, you know, she has a boss, she has some peers. And it's just this sort of simple story about she's got a problem in her organization. She knows she has a problem because she's super clear with herself and her peers and her team about what output she's trying to produce. That's what we call output and status broadcasting. She's also super clear about forecasting forward, you know, based on our current course, here's what we'll get. And so she can look and say, you know, the course we're on is going to result in something different than we thought. Um, That's all part of output and status broadcasting, the first of those five practices. Because they have the second of the five practices, what I call work preview meetings, there's a regular kind of a staff-like meeting where she can go. She can bring this issue to her peers and her boss, and she can say in a very specific way, you know, here's the variance I'm seeing, and here's the impact of that. Here's why it's happening. And here's what I think we as a team should do about that variance because it affects all of us. And, and there's some pieces of specific pieces we can talk about around work preview meetings about how that works. But, you know, what you notice as I say it is she's not giving a 25 or 30 or 40 minute presentation about what's going on. She's teeing up a problem and a recommendation and allowing the group to focus on, you know, to what extent is that the right answer or what should we do here? So that's the work preview meetings. They make a good group decision about that. We call that group decision making. We can get specific about how, you know, what are the good and bad ways to make a decision in a group? Um, I'll give you a spoiler, which is voting doesn't work well. Um, voting produces irrational results in small groups. You can draw your own conclusions about, you know, broader politics, but in small groups, irrational results. Uh, linked teams is the fourth thing. And so that has to do with the fact that, you know, Alice runs this team. Her boss has his own team, which is her and her peers. So what about her peers and their teams when they decide together to make a change that affects all the teams and how do those tie together? That's the concept of linked teams. And then finally, the last bit of it is, and by the way, where did she get this forecast? How does she know that you know things are going to be different? And the answer is the forecast comes from the people doing the work. That's the front line. And they can only forecast, they can only know what, what's going to happen in the future with their work if they can actually realistically know, am I ahead? Am I behind? How's it going? And so we call it frontline self-sufficiency, but there are these things that have to be in place, very simple things, clear goals, you know, awareness of how you're doing, control of resources. We get those things in place, and then the front line can actually tell you on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis how they're doing, and that's what feeds the information in so that Alice can have this conversation. So, you know, as I tell the story, it almost, again, sounds boring. It's just another day in the life of a manager, right? Things aren't going like I thought. Hey, guys, we have to adjust this thing this way or that way, but it's a way of doing it that lets that happen with a maximum of intelligence and information and a minimum of politics, churn, and time wasted. That politics one is key because you, you mentioned uh, on your videos as well, you mentioned it's a North American approach to management. I think it's a Western approach to management because I think most European companies have learned the American way because many of the books and many of the structures came from America in the first instance. And so they've come across the Atlantic and over this side of the world. But I love what you say about this story of Alice that the team at the end of this, if they put these structures in place, they have a commitment to each other to get the job done, even if they don't personally agree. That's right. Everyone sort of understands going in. We call this a disagree and commit contract. It's, it's one small but extremely important part of the group decision making. And that is everyone agrees, hey, you know, we're, we're essentially real grownups in real life. We're not always going to agree. And we recognize that it's better to act in coordination than it is to sabotage each other. So essentially, the upshot of that is we're going to take turns doing things we don't agree with. And we, we will do that. We will still implement we don't agree. 
it's fine to keep disagreeing. It's fine to keep collecting contrary evidence because maybe it was the wrong decision and we want to discover that. So, so every manager says to his or her team at the next level, look, don't check your brain at the door. If you disagree, keep disagreeing, keep collecting contrary evidence. But that's the second priority. The first priority is implementation. Once we've agreed, we implement because it's taking the step, right? When you're walking to the parking lot, you don't figure out that you're going to the wrong car until you're halfway there. If you just stand in the doorway and sort of half take a step and half not, you don't get any information, right? So we all agree together that taking the steps is important. And so we all take turns doing things we disagree with. And we all commit to, hey, you know, if we think we're going to take some of Alice's peer money and give it back to Alice to help her recover this and the peer doesn't want to do it, that person's going to do it anyway. And then if we see some negative effects, we can always decide again. We can always come back to it and look at it. That's iteration. But we're not going to sabotage. We're not going to agree to do it and not do it because that just produces chaos, right? That doesn't produce information. It just produces confusion. I love the metaphor of taking the steps. I know it's it's very simple, but when you think of most larger organizations actually spend a fortune on deciding what the first step is going to be rather than actually having the best information they have available. That's their information, not that of a consultant, not best practices in an industry. And then deciding, oh, I'm going to take a step because the best physio in the world says this is how you walk. Instead of actually going, well, for my ecosystem and my industry, I know best because I've got the scar tissue of real experience. So I'm going to take a step. And therefore, by taking the step, the thermostat kicks in and I get feedback. And then I know what the next step after that is going to be. Exactly. And, you know, there's so much good work around, you know, agile with a capital A and, and you know, sort of iterative programming. They don't call it that. That's what I call it. Uh, you know, quick, quick, um, quick production of a beta product or a, of a prototype rapid prototyping, they call it, right? There's so much specific work in that area because there is this recognition I think we have earned over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so that says it's better to do something and learn from it than to hypothesize. But yet we still have, you know, the management of these same organizations lost in these management models from the mid 1800s that were used for railway construction, you know, where we're going to make a plan and stick to the plan and execute the plan. And so you've got all these people that are, you know, pushing on these agile with a lowercase a approaches in all these different ways and they're pushing them uphill because the management still is running the old way. What I'm really saying and iterate is management should be driving that, right? If you have a, if you have something like a strategy and a direction and a place to go and a clear output that you're trying to get to, it's management that gets you there. It's management that develops the information as you go along to determine whether you really want to go there. And it's management that can make it actually happen at the end of the day. So, so the, it has to happen in management. And I think that's often missed because we say this is a leadership skill, but it's management who actually implements. Like you say, it's managing the system that actually gets things done. Let's jump into the five key management principles. And the first is probably one of my favorites, actually, output and status broadcasting, which has the two core components, verbalized summary outputs and pragmatic dashboards. That's right. And so that that's at the top. They're all interrelated. We actually put them in, a, if you go to the website, you'll see they're in a circle, but but they're all connected. But I always start by talking about that one because if you're not talking about what you're trying to accomplish, then it's kind of hard to have the rest of the conversation. The output and status broadcasting really just has two parts. The first part is super simple. It is managers in high performing organizations are somewhat boring in that they walk around and say over and over again, this is the output I'm going to produce. That way their team knows it, their peers know it, everyone knows it. And Everyone knows what each other is doing. And so we route sort of questions and work and things intelligently because we all know what we're doing and we don't bother people with things they're not doing, right? So that's that's fairly simple. Uh, and you know, you certainly don't need me to tell you that when you have direct reports, they need to hear you say what you're trying to do more than once, right? So it's this repetition is important. 
But the other part of that that I think is more unique to this work is I call it pragmatic dashboards. And I should pause for just a minute to say language in this work is a problem because once I say a word like dashboards, somebody says, oh, we have dashboards. I know what that is. And so what I say in the book is, you know, try and pretend like I'm talking about something you've never heard of. Because if you get lost in the, in the, you know, the, the language choice, then we never get anywhere. But what I mean by pragmatic dashboards is once I have a, a clear output, I need to make a chart. And most of what we see in management charts is, you know, if we take a simple example, you know, I work for you, Aiden, I'm supposed to make these widgets every week. And so I'll bring you a bar chart that shows how many widgets I made every week since the beginning of the year, right? That's my graph. And maybe if it's a really good graph, I also draw kind of the plan on there and say, I'm, I'm going to keep flat or I'm going to go up and you can see that I have or have not been keeping to the plan so far, right? The problem with that is that's all history. And you're going to say to me, so Ed, what's going to happen next? And now we're talking about something that's not on the graph, right? So now I'm going to opine to you in long narrative form about why I think everything's fine or, you know, it's not or whatever, or why I have problems only you can solve because you're my boss, so you better help me, you know, whatever. But what I really need on the graph is I call it two futures. So maybe I have a line that says, you know, this is my planned output for the rest of the year. But now I need a second line. You can call it a forecast if you want to. Here's another line that shows based on my best knowledge today, what, if anything, is the difference between what I previously thought would happen and what I now think will happen? We call that future variance. And if there's enough future variance, now we have something to talk about, right? Now we say, well, the plan was for me to produce up to here. It looks like I'm going to underproduce or I'm going to overproduce. What does it mean to the rest of the organization when I overrun? That variance is the, the crux of what needs to be talked about in management. And so that output and status broadcasting is setting up the conversation both in terms of what the output is, but also in terms of what future variants are we looking at? Where do we need to make adjustments potentially? Can we hone in a little bit on verbalized summary outputs? Because I really feel this is so vital for people because you talk about the elevator pitch, you know, somebody asks you what you do. If you can't verbalize easily what you do, it means you don't really know. And also what you say, and I think this is absolutely essential, is by verbalizing it really, really expertly and simply to somebody so they know exactly what you do. It also builds trust within an organization. That's right. You know, there, there's, a, there's a couple of good things about the verbalized summary outputs. They actually, it's actually, people think it's sort of an adaptation on the concept of the elevator pitch. It turns out the elevator pitch came from the research that generated verbalized summary outputs, which was people walking around in management saying in 90 seconds or less, here's what I'm working on and saying it over and over again so much to kind of be boring. But, but we, we do know that trust is built essentially by making and meeting commitments, right? I think we all know that. If we don't, it's important to realize that that's one of the key ways, one of the, one of the only ways really to build trust in an organizational setting is to make commitments and then meet them because you demonstrate both that you're competent and that you're honest in your statements of what you'll do. And so the trick to the verbalized summary output is you know, Aiden, I'm doing my work at the end of the month or whatever, I'm going to give it to you. And there it is, right? Now, did I build trust? Maybe, maybe not. But if I say to you, I'm going to do this by the end of the month, and then I come with that same piece of work I was already going to do and put it in front of you, now I've made a commitment and I've met it. So if you're my boss, if you're my peer, if you're somebody else who works for me in the organization, uh, I've now built trust in a way for free because I was, I was going to do the work anyway. All I did is make sure you knew I committed to it so that it, it's a fulfilled commitment. And that's, that's a big part of the VSO, the verbalized summary output. Of course, the other part is, like you said, just people understanding what you're doing so that the system gets smarter as a system. 
digging even further into it, because I'd say this is something that people have often experienced within an organization. When you do share your VSO with people, even people you don't know so well, there's three possible responses that you get back from them. That's right. And what you're looking for is one of three, affiliative, combative, or neutral, right? So affiliative means, you know, Aiden tells me, Ed, here's what I'm working on. And I go, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Here's how I'm working on something related to that. You know, I think that's super important. That's affiliative. That's enjoyable. That means we should talk more because our work is related, right? The second one is combative. That is, you know, Aiden tells me, here's what I'm working on. And I go, Aiden, why would you, in the world, would you do that? You're going to break the following things. You know, are, did you bunk your head this morning? Like, what's wrong with you, right? And, and much less kind ways of saying that. And the interesting thing is, in that case, too, what you should do is you should engage with me because that means that you and I have just uncovered an organizational conflict, right? That means I'm working on something that's at odds with your work, and we probably should sort that out. So that's also an engagement cue. The third one is the neutral response, and that is you say, here's what I'm working on, and I go, oh, that's nice, and I smile politely. And that means that what I'm working on is not at all related to what you're working on. And so the guidance there is make a few minutes of polite small talk, you know, don't harm the relationship, but, but there's not a conversation to have in terms of output. You can sort of move away from that. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that's sort of using your VSO at the next level as kind of a test point of saying, you know, how can I uncover the people I need to find both because they're supportive and also because there's a conflict I need to resolve. Again, on the VSO, I, I just think it's so important because when you avoid conflict, work is hard enough as it is. And you say this, you say this throughout the book, it's hard enough as it is, we have to deal with disruption, competition, and just general work. And then if you add in all this baggage that can be avoided, work can become a joyous occasion again, especially if you have a really clear VSO, a real clear purpose, and connected to the greater purpose of the company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the, you know, I think the beauty of the VSO is it's it's allowing those kind of upward looks to say, here's how my work connects to the next level and those kind of things. It's also allowing those kind of lateral looks, which are, you know, are, are we having conflict? Do we need to sort this out? The other thing too, that I think is important is, you know, we sometimes forget that there is conflict inherent in the organization, right? Like for example, should we spend our money developing a a new product or marketing the product we have, there's not an easy automatic answer to that because, you know, it depends, right? So, so that's a real conflict. Sometimes you find these real organizational conflicts and then you realize, hey, it's the job of the manager to find the other manager with the conflict and sort this out. Uh, and, you know, I think we're tempted to sort of say there's something wrong in that case, right? Like, you know, why, why is there all this confusion? But really, that's a real tension we face in an organization. And you are the managers, you're the real people whose job it is to sort it out. So you shouldn't frame that mentally as being sort of a flaw. You should frame it as mentally being sort of a natural part of how things work. An opportunity to fix, I suppose. And if you fix them, somebody who may appear to be confrontational actually becomes a partner or a fellow champion of your work. The advice I give managers is one of them is embrace complexity, which is, you know, just get over the idea that things are simple. And then your stress level will go down when you stop saying things are so messed up around here because they're so complicated. You go, no, it's complicated. I was hired to do a hard job in a complicated scenario. I'm not always going to do it right. I'm going to make the best decision I can today and then make the best decision I can tomorrow with the collective intelligence of those you know I work with. And I think that can be a stress reducer, even though it doesn't actually make the job any easier. That self-talk, I think, for an organization is really, really important. Yes, I think that's right. And I think, I think too often we sort of self-talk in the other direction and we, we sort of all get, gather around the water cooler and talk about how screwed up things are because, you know, 
it's so complicated and so hard and we're making it hard. And, you know, I mean, organizations do make it hard for themselves, but they're often doing a thing that's also really difficult in itself. And, and that's okay. And last question on VSO. I know we've spent a bit of time on this one. You give very clear guidelines on how we can craft a personal VSO. How do we go about that, Ed? You know, the simple version is it's a 90 second statement of usually it's three to seven. We like to see outputs. So the way you start is you start writing down all your outputs and forget about the things that are important and real, but they aren't outputs like travel and email and things like that. And just write down, you know, especially if you're a manager, what are the three to seven things you're arranging your resources, your people, your money, your equipment, whatever you control, three to seven things you're arranging your resources to do, and then start practicing telling it to people in about 90 seconds and be as specific as you can. You know, don't try and say general things like I'm the customer relations manager, say specific things like I'm working to see a 2.5 average improvements in our customer SAT scores in this area or something, you know, whatever it is. And then start saying it to people and listen for those responses. Say it to your boss, see what your boss thinks. Say it to your peers, see what they think. And in the saying it, you'll start to get better at saying it, but you also start to get that, that information back from the system. I hesitate to use the word feedback because we've used it in a different context, but you start to get that information back from the system, which is, you know, what might need adjusting? What's the right thing? What does the system need the most? What's not as important as I thought? The flip side of this whole coin is really the pragmatic dashboard. Let's share a bit about that one as well. The key thing of the pragmatic dashboard, as I said before, is if you've got these two futures, if you're able to say, you know, here's the future I was expecting and here's the future I'm now expecting, then that's the first step in stripping out a lot of long-winded narrative conversation in conversation, right? With a boss or with with a peer group in a staff meeting, because you're able to say sort of quickly and readily, you know, I'm right on track to what we thought, or I'm not in this way. And when I'm not to a great enough extent, it starts to, it starts to matter. Now, the, the risk of me kind of talking about it with you and using the simple example of I have a bar chart is the graphs can look really different. Project graphs look different than troubleshooting graphs, which is like things like, you know, phone support centers. Troubleshooting graphs look different than things like routine work, like production. So it, it does depend on what kind of work you're doing. And even under that, there are many, many ways to do it. Uh, In fact, in the book, I have three appendices, four appendices that just show different examples of graphs that do this. But what the graphs all have in common is this idea that, you know, once you know how to read it, you can look at it and you can say, oh, I can see that we are or are not on track where we're going. In other words, I can draw a line from where I'm walking in the direction I'm walking in and see if it bumps into my car or not my car. And if it's not my car, how far off my car is it? And, you know, is that worth kind of dealing with? That's the future variance issue. It tees up nicely that if you have really useful data, as you call it, it can steer meetings and make them more efficient, which tees up the next piece of the pie, next principle, which is work preview meetings. Right. So work, work preview meetings are my answer to staff meetings. And, you know, so back to the language thing for a second, I don't need anyone to call their staff meeting a work preview meeting if it's not going to help them accomplish the behaviors we're talking about. But what I do know is that many staff meetings are these sort of dreaded ceremonial things where everybody comes in and sits down and is bored for, you know, 60 to 90 minutes while their peers either posture or talk or don't talk or, you know, their boss gives these long-winded kind of conversational things or or they defend their past decisions, right? There's there, there's so many ways a staff meeting can go wrong. And so my idea of the work preview meeting is this is the meeting where the iteration is going to happen, right? So now that we have this variance, now that our, our friend Alice has said, you know, my second future doesn't look like my first future. We need to talk about this because it's going to affect more than just my group, right? So that's the reason she brings it to the team is that. And so 
now the work preview meeting is a forward-looking meeting where everyone is saying, okay, so you know, what's that going to do to us if you're over, if you're under, if you're late, if you're early? What does that mean for this peer who's depending on your output to do her output? What does that mean for this peer who's communicating, I don't know, to customers maybe about that output, whatever. And so the work preview meeting, it starts with a quick review of everybody's work very quickly, you know, just put up the graphs and look at them. That doesn't take long. And then we start to deal with the highest priority variances, you know, working down the list so that every meeting we're addressing at least one or two of the most important variances. That's what it's about. Now we talk about it being consistent. That is, you have to have them even when the manager's not there. We talk about it being forward-looking, as I said. We talk about it being focused on resource. We call it resource allocation focus. And that is because all you can do as a management team is adjust resources, right? You can't change the environment. You can't change your competitors. You can't you know, get your CEO to think differently. What you can do is move the resources around under your control, the people, the equipment, the money, and readjust resources within your scheme of things to better align the work to the required output, right? And so that's that. And then the fourth thing we talk about is the structure of the meeting. And I call it OSIR structure, which is an acronym, O-S-I-R. And that just stands for Objective Status Issue Recommendation. And that's just a reminder to be a non-narrative structure, meaning when Alice gets up in front of her group to explain her variance, she says, as you know, as you've heard me say in my VSO, here's what I'm trying to do. That's objective. Oh, as you can see from my graph, I have a future variance. I'm not going to hit the plan. I thought I would. Status, S. The reason I'm not going to hit the plan I thought I would is that blah, blah, blah. Resources are different. I can't get people, whatever. That's I, that's issue. And so I recommend based on this that I take some money from my peer, put it into my budget, that'll get me back on track. Or I recommend that you all better adjust your expectations and change your output plans accordingly. Or I recommend something else. That's the R, the recommendation. That whole thing takes two, three minutes. And then we open up the airtime in the meeting for a discussion and a decision about the recommendation, as opposed to having everyone sit quietly while Alice talks for 25 or 30 minutes with a bunch of slides about what's going on, right? That's the core difference of the work preview meeting. We're looking forward, we're looking at variants, and we're spending as much as possible our time talking about what we're going to do about these recommendations, taking action, as opposed to just looking at sort of status. You don't like meetings either, but you're like, they are so necessary. Meetings are necessary, but let's make them seriously efficient. And I'd like to focus on the forward-looking orientation because. Oftentimes what we do is we talk about current status or history, almost justifying why we are where we are. By making a future orientated, it changes the mindset of the organization. And as you say, it reminds people of your objective. But you do say within there, you have to discuss the history for a moment, or you have to discuss the status for a moment, because they totally understand what you do, and therefore trust is in the organization. That's right. We say, you know, both history and status are minimized but not eliminated. We don't want long-winded meetings talking about history and current status. But we do open that meeting, as I said before, with a brief overview of here's... So Alice, for example, puts up her three or four or five graphs and says, you've seen these graphs before. As you can see, I'm okay in these areas. You know, this is the one we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Any questions, right? And so we go through that process. Now, you might think, well, you know, why bother? Why not just jump into Alice's problem? The reason is trust. The reason is by contextualizing Alice's problem in terms of her work and by Alice and her peers seeing every week 
you know, my peers are running their areas really well. You know, the, the house is not on fire. These people are competent managers, you know, but I see that Alice has a problem. Over time, that keeps the trust. If instead we only ever had meetings where people brought problems, then if I'm Alice's peer, the only time I ever hear from her is when she has a problem. And so after about a year, in my mind, Alice is a collection of problems, right? She only opens her mouth when something is wrong. All I ever hear is what's wrong. And so trust is badly damaged. So again, it's a chance to make and meet those commitments. It's a chance to build that trust. It's a chance to let the manager and the peers see quickly, hey, what, what's going on around us? You know, what questions do you have? But then turn the conversation quickly onto, okay, now let's spend our time and our airtime and our discussion time acting on useful recommendations to better our output, as opposed to spending our whole 60, 90, two hours, whatever, listening to each other impress each other with how effective we are, right? And that, unfortunately, is where a lot of staff meetings go. There's a key piece you talk about. So before you go into this meeting, when you're going to actually represent yourself and your team, you talk about some of the pitfalls. And one of those pitfalls is getting information without causing problems. There are a couple of places to go wrong. There are a lot of places to go wrong in a staff meeting, really. One of them is the more you're focused on putting together a package to demonstrate your value to your manager and peers, the more time you spend dealing with your staff on getting information together to put together that package. And so you have this whole organization that's spending their time producing, you know, a newsletter for each other kind of a thing, right? So, so that's a problem. The other thing is, and this applies in the staff meeting as well, you know, we talk about getting information without causing trouble. You know, you, the whole thing about the OSER, that recommendation is a straw man recommendation is a much better tool to use to get information than a question. So, you know, imagine Alice turning to her peer in the meeting and saying, hey, can I have, you know, X number of dollars out of your budget? I mean, the first answer is no, right? I mean, that's, that's the first answer, right? It's a human being with their own problems and their own budget and their own constraints. So instead we say, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's, you know, why it's a little off track. Here's the issue behind that. My recommendation is if we took something from here and put it over here, it might help that. What do we think, right? So it's a straw man proposal. Now, is that person still going to start by saying no? Well, maybe we'll talk about that in linked teams. But at least they're going to start by saying, well, you know, here are the problems of your proposal. What if you did this instead? As opposed to just, you know, no, get away from me, which is, which is you know, the more typical response, right? So the whole focus of that OSER process and that work preview meeting is we get a lot more information and cause a lot less trouble if we position ourselves by saying, look, here's my agenda. You know what it is. I'm being upfront with you here's what I think would help my agenda and do the least harm to yours. What do you think about that? And, and start there. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's easier. You mentioned there are questions as well. So you're asking somebody, you call out a really, really important thing about questions that questions can suggest status or hierarchy, but also many questions can come across as verbally aggressive. Actually, all questions are verbally aggressive in the sense of in polite conversation, if I ask you a question, you're supposed to answer it, right? So if I ask you two or three questions in a row, what I'm basically saying without saying it is, I have a higher status than you because it is your role to provide me the information I want and not vice versa. And we actually watch for this. When we talk about group dynamics in these meetings, one way you can dominate a meeting is the obvious way, and that is just to talk too much. But another way of dominating a meeting is to ask multiple questions in a row. And so the advice we give is if you see anybody asking more than three questions in a row, that's a form of domination. And you should counsel that or facilitate that or kind of adjust that because questions are suggestive of a status difference. They are also 
uncomfortable in the sense of we don't have good social tools for not answering a question when it's asked. And sometimes we don't want to answer. So especially in a group setting, you know, if I turn to somebody and say, why did this go wrong? Right. I mean, there's an accusation in there. Maybe I don't mean it that way. Maybe I do, but maybe they're not prepared to answer that question. And now they're faced with a choice of fabricating an answer, looking foolish, not answering, looking foolish. Right. So questions really cause a lot of trouble. It's much better to work in terms of statements of my agenda followed by recommendations for group action. And this is why you say it's so important to A, have an agenda, but B, to send it out well in advance of a meeting. So somebody can see something on an agenda and actually be proactive about it rather than reactive within the meeting. Right. And and this story about Alice and the way when you see it in in the video, I don't know if we go this detailed in the high level video, but definitely in the book, we talk about this. That agenda should include Alice's recommendation, right? So when this other person comes into the meeting, he already knows that Alice is going to make a recommendation involving his budget. Now, we need to talk about linked teams because that's where we get into how come he doesn't just spend his whole time in the next 24 hours putting together his defense. But it's important that he not be surprised by that, right? This all sort of also goes back to this definition of what management is for, right? If we see ourselves as managers, you know, if Alice and her peer, they see themselves as managers and they see their job as, you know, protect my team against the broader organization, accumulate as much resource control as I can make myself look good or demonstrate my value to my boss on a regular basis, right? All of these typical, you know, North American, Western management things that, that we see, they're going to spend that kind of time in the meeting. If we can get them clear and say, no, no, you know, my job as a manager is to work in coordination with my peer managers on, you know, what we're trying to do as a group and to coordinate the resources for the higher level good of the organization then they're going to act differently. And so, so we do, as we get into, we're moving into linked teams now, that's the conversation. But the conversation is around, you know, what are our expectations on you as a manager? You know, it's not about building your fiefdom, you know, and, and walling off your resources and isolating your work. It's about coordination because, you know, in real life, we need the organization to be coordinated. That's how we do complicated things. This piece is so important and where things can go dramatically wrong. Before we do move on to linked teams, it'd be great to spend a little time on meetings and you talk about disciplined meeting management. Yeah, so disciplined meeting management has, you know, just a small handful of components. And and this is sort of the management is the least sexy part of the organization. And I think disciplined meeting management is the least sexy part of management. So this is the part everybody really hates. But, <laughs> you can go make a cup of tea now. This is the time to do really, it. You don't, you don't want to hear this. I mean, this is like how the sausage is made, you know. But, but if you're going to put a group of people in a room, you know, first of all, purpose and membership, right? You need to know, like, that you have a clear reason for putting them in the room, whether it's virtual or, you know, real. And you need to have the right people there to do what it is you're trying to do. So purpose and membership. Then agenda, right? We need to spend enough time making a plan for the time so that we're not just roaming around endlessly or arguing or whatever, right? That's that's number two. And then we have group problem-solving process and group dynamics. So group problem-solving process is just simply when we're trying to solve a problem together, do we spend enough time defining the problem before we get into solution space? There's a little more to it than that. There's a model in the book and on the site, but but basically... You know, if we just listen to the loudest voice with the solution before we define the problem, then we're never going to get the best solution. So it's fully define the problem and agree on the problem first, then agree on the solution second. So we need a model for that. The next thing after that is dynamics, which is contribution levels. So remember, we've said we have the right people in the room. We need them all engaged and contributing. Because if we have a person in the room who represents a part of the organization, 
and that person is distracted or not paying attention or doesn't care, then all of those resources in the organization are not available to this problem, but we think they are necessary, right? So we use a little simple tool called the Hill of Influence. There's another video about that. You draw some circles, you can mark where you are, you can mark where other people are, you can use it to debrief and sort of admit to each other how engaged were you. That's a simple tool, but the concept is we need people engaged. And then the last thing is actually the simplest, and that is what we call shared group memory. And that's simply, you know, make sure that whatever form of notes and visuals that you use in the meeting and, and do use them, right? So if a decision is made, you know, whether you're live or virtual, do something to write it in front of everybody. They can all see it. They can all say, yep, that's the decision. We, we are making this decision together. We can see it. And then whatever that is, take a pictures, take a screenshot, whatever, send that same thing out afterwards. Don't transcribe it into notes because that picture is linked cognitively to the decision in their minds. And so they see the image and it reminds them. If you transcribe it into notes, then they have to make the cognitive leap back and they won't necessarily do it. So, so it's actually the easiest one. You say, whatever you make sure you do something in front of everybody and then just take screenshots of it and send it out. Don't worry about fixing typos and things. Just send it out the way it is. Yeah, those five things are discipline meeting management. If you don't do those five things in your meetings, then you're not going to have very good meetings. And the whole thing kind of falls down because like you said, you know, love them or hate them, meetings are where coordination happens. We have not got an AI or an automated solution yet to replace human beings coordinating resources for complex outputs. We need meetings for that. Funnily, so glad you said it about the taking photos of the notes because we are so tempted to transcribe them because we think we're being more helpful and it's actually more work. But also... When you transcribe them, people think you may have added it to them. And like you say, there's a cognitive connection with actually we all agreed on that as well. Right, right. And you might even do it. I get an edit. You might change a case of a word or something that actually changes the meaning. And if there's a trust problem now, they think it's malicious. But even if they don't, it's sort of like, wait, is that what we decided? And it just creates, there's just no reason to do it. It feels like a, it feels like a good step. Like you said, it feels like I'm being helpful and useful, but it's not. Just, just take a picture and, and say, this was it. Remember, here it is. Don't forget to do it like we agreed. That, that's the best you can do. You talk about defining the problem. I actually wrote it in my blog last week about spending time defining the problem or getting to the right question. I don't know if it's a human thing, but we're just so driven on getting to the solution. And maybe it's ego, maybe it's to show that we're clever or whatever it is, but we jump to solutions and instead of actually going, but what's the real problem we're defining, whether it's for the customer or for the organization? Can we spend a little time on that? Because what kind of process do you put in place to really get to the crux of your problem? Well, it's so easy to jump to solutions. And, and I mean, many of us, especially those of us in management, are spending our lives solving problems. And the problems that are in our purview, meaning you know they sort of involve things under my control completely or whatever, I can jump to solution. I can say, oh, I know the answer. I've done that job or whatever. And so we're sort of, we're equipped from our own success to sort of jump to solution. But you know, now we go to the next level up in the organization and we say, you know, we have a problem that involves Edge group, agents group, analysis group. So now I'm merging the real people with the fictitious people. So this is even better. And and all of these groups are involved in this problem. And so, you know, Ed, Ed talks a lot and he has a loud voice. And so he says, I know the answer to this. And, and you know, it's like before the problem statement is out of the meeting host's mouth, Ed's going, here, you know, do this, this, and this, problem solved. Well, that's based on my understanding of my world and my piece of it. But before we ever start having that conversation, what a good facilitator will do, will say, Ed, thank you but we're not there yet, we need to come to a ag first agreement on what the problem is. And it's actually a separate agreement. And that's what the sort of the model says. We draw like an hourglass, like it, it's like it gets wider and narrower in the middle and then wider and narrower again. And the idea is you have to narrow down that middle point in the hourglass is the problem definition. So you have to narrow down the group to a shared problem definition before you even offer the first solution. Because the truth is, even the person setting up the meeting, once it's complex enough to involve these different groups, 
we don't really understand what the problem is, right? I mean, production may say one thing about it, you know, we're not getting stuff out fast enough. You know, the customer might say, well, the real problem is the quality isn't there, right? Or whatever. So until you've come to a definition of a problem as a group, you've got to do that. So you need to sort of debate and argue and, and disagree over the problem and come to that agreement first before you even start to debate and argue and disagree over possible solutions to the problem. That's your next step. And that whole process is, we think it's about 50-50, meaning however much time you're going to spend, we think the first half of it is just defining the problem. The second half of it is kind of getting into solutions. There's a quote you use, and it's my favorite quote in the entire book. It's to do with linked teams, which is the next topic. And it's, you, you start off this chapter with it. It's, you can't bake a pie one slice at a time. I love that one too. That's actually, so the person who said that is, is Bill Daniels, William Daniels. He is my predecessor in this business and my mentor. And it's something he would say sort of offhandedly to managers. But I just think it's brilliant because we have this sort of, I think it's a, it's a myth, right? In this North American, this Western management mythology is that, you know, I'm going to, if I have five managers working for me, I'm going to send them off to do their goals and they're going to bring it back to me and I'm going to stitch it together. And that's essentially like saying, each of you bring me a slice of the pie and then I'll put it together and we'll bake it, right? And it's like, it, it doesn't work that way, right? We have to sort of do it all together. And that's the concept of linked teams. Linked teams says, you know, we've got Alice and we've got her peers and they work for this guy named Max. And, you know, Alice has her VSO and her peer has his VSO and Max has a VSO. But Alice and all of her peers are in a team with Max and that team has a single charter and that charter is Max's VSO. So they are the team chartered with producing their team leader's VSO. Now, Alice also runs a team. She has managers working for her and she has a VSO that she uses in Max's organization. Her team members that work for her have their own sort of VSOs, their output plans as well, but they work as a team on her output plan. And so this is the core of linked teams. We call it upward looking success. And it is to say, Alice tells her team the same thing Max tells his team, which includes Alice, which is we succeed or fail together. You all have your own goals. You have your own independent sort of ways we measure what you're doing. You are held accountable to those goals. You know, don't avoid doing them. But you also need to know that if we as a team don't achieve my higher level goals, then you all have not succeeded. And so this is the immediate break of the silo because now all of a sudden, you know, remember Alice's peer was going to come in and, and kind of position himself to not let her request resources. They're still going to have the debate, but the debate is going to be what's best for our boss's plan, right? So Alice is going to say, I recommend I take money from my peer to fix this problem because it's better for our shared collective higher level plan. And if the peer wants to say, don't do that, that's fine. But he's going to say, if you do that, it's going to break the following things. And in that way, it's not best for our shared collective plan. And so we're constantly involved in a debate about what's best for the higher level up. In other words, we're all looking up, right? And so with Alice's staff looking up at her goals, with Alice and her peers looking up at Max's goals, with everyone looking up at the next level goals, we allow the top level of the organization to look out, right? Look forward. Where are we walking? Is there a hole? You know, what's going on in the market, right? The alternative, the, the Western North American traditional management model is everyone looks down, right? Alice says, you have A, you have B, you have C. I'm going to watch you and make sure you get it done. I'll put it together. And then Max says to Alice, you know, at the next level up, Alice, you have this. Peer, you have that. Peer, you have that. Bring it to me and I'll put it together. And so everyone's looking down. And so if everyone's looking down, then the top is looking down and no one's watching where we're going, right? So, so this is the flip. This is the, 
everyone look up and you know hey peer of alice if you want to come and, and you want to come and say you don't like alice's recommendation that's fine but we're our whole conversation is about the higher level goal and let's talk in terms of that beautiful man i love that that's such a great analogy and then the last principle then is frontline self-sufficiency frontline self-sufficiency is in some ways the easiest one because all it says is i mean not that it's easy to do but it's easy to think about all it says is down at the front line of this organization we need people to have essentially three things and these are the subcomponents clear output goals again just like everybody else they need to know what they're trying to produce self-managed feedback now this is a different use of feedback this is again not the manager telling them how they're doing but self-managed is they can perceive their own progress. So they have a system, they have checklists, they have sticky notes. Again, there's a number of possible systems, but they have a way every hour, every half hour, you know, very frequently, they can see themselves making headway. And then control of resources, which just says that if they need something to do the job, they can get to it without, with a minimum of, you know, approvals and, and bureaucracy and steps. And so the formula is goals plus feedback plus resources equals forecasts, right? If I give you a job to do and you know exactly what you're supposed to do, you can see when you're doing it or when you're not and how fast it's going and you have what you need to do it. Then if I come to you midweek and go, how's it going? You can give me a good forecast. You can say, well, you know, it's going to get done on Friday or it's not going to get done on Friday or I'm, you know, 30% of the way there. Uh, whereas if you don't have those things, you know, then you can't forecast. You're going to say, well, I don't know. It depends on if I get this or that. You know, I'm not sure how far into it I am. What am I really trying to do? Right. So there's all these ways it can fall off. But, but goals plus feedback plus resources equals forecasts. And it's those forecasts that we need to do that really useful forward-looking data, to look forward and say, do we have a future variance? That's that's how the organization rolls information upwards. Fantastic. And, and it actually makes life easier for people. When work is hard enough without all this complexity that can be removed. And I love your mantra, higher output, lower stress, and sustainable growth. And it's one of the things that really attracted me to the book because it's a very, very different approach on management. Ed, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, the book website we've mentioned a couple of times is iteratenow.com. That's I-T-E-R-A-T-E-N-O-W.com. And that's also got links back to my company. My company is groupharmonics.com. And then I'm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn as Ed Musio, just E-D-M-U-Z-I-O. And I'm on YouTube as eMuseo, so any of those works. But those are all linked from iteratenow.com and groupharmonics.com as well. CEO of Group Harmonics, an award-winning author of Iterate, run a fast, flexible, focused management team, Ed Musio. Thanks for joining us. Aiden, thank you. It's been a pleasure.